Part 3 of the Report of the Airship Hindenburg Accident Investigation by the United States Department of Commerce. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Part 3 The Landing Maneuver Meteorological Conditions With respect to the meteorological conditions in which the landing was conducted, a summary of the general weather is given as well as the local conditions prevailing at Lakehurst at the time of the accident. General The 7.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time United States Weather Bureau map of the vicinity including the northeastern tier of states shows a disturbance over central New York and northeastern Pennsylvania with a cold front extending from this center southwestward to West Virginia. This front separated neutralized polar air to the east of the cold front, which had become warmer and more moist, and neutralized colder air to the west of the front. The warmer and more moist mass of air covered the middle Atlantic states, southeastern New York, and southern New England. The cold front advanced eastward during the day from central Pennsylvania at a rate of 12 to 15 miles per hour, passing Lakehurst shortly after 3.30 p.m., there was not quite sufficient surface heating during the early afternoon to set off a thunderstorm at Lakehurst, and it was not until the front passed and some slight lifting of the air mass occurred that a thunderstorm began. The records of the Naval Air Station show that the thunderstorm began at 3.40 p.m. and ended at 4.45 p.m. Telegraphic reports indicate the thunderstorms in and to the west of New Jersey were not severe, nor were they of a well-defined squall character. Between 12 p.m. and 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, these storms extended in a definite belt over the region of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, northeastward to Bear Mountain, New York, and New Hackensack, New York. Between 1.30 and 2.40 p.m., none was reported. Between 2.40 and 3.40 p.m., Camden and Fort Monmouth, New Jersey only reported thunderstorms. Between 3.30 and 4.30 p.m., Lakehurst, Mitchellfield, New York, and Floyd Bennett Field, New York reported them. Between 4.40 and 5.40 p.m., none was reported, and between 5.40 and 6.40 p.m., Floyd Bennett only reported one. Summarized, the thunderstorms in eastern New Jersey were of a local character and not severe. The New York Weather Bureau Office Bulletin, issued at 1.20 p.m. May 6, follows. 1800 GCT Moderate wind shift with increasing and lowering clouds 
possible thunder showers New York and vicinity expected in middle or late afternoon. Stop. New York. Scattered cumulus and small cumulonimbus approaching from west. Visibility excellent. Surface wind south, 12 miles. Barometer, 29.68, falling steadily. Temperature, 66. Local. With the passage of the front at Lakehurst, the wind shifted to the northwest with gusts up to 20 knots and was accompanied by slight increase in barometric pressure, decrease in temperature, heavy showers, and several thunder showers. Then there followed a rapid decrease in the velocity of the wind, and its direction became variable. The wind at Lakehurst at 6.10 p.m., went into the southeast and remained there for about 45 minutes, shifting again, and then it became mostly southerly. The front, after passing about 3.30 p.m. EST, apparently slowed down to a rate of approximately 7 miles an hour and was in the vicinity of Atlantic City, New Jersey, at 8 p.m. Its direction being north-northeast through southwest, clearing rapidly after 8 p.m. During the afternoon, cumulonimbus and cumulus clouds developed locally, and with the approach of the front, there appeared a well-defined mild squall line in the west, which moved slowly over Lakehurst, and apparently became stationary between it and the shoreline until about 5.30 p.m., when it continued eastward. Several heavy showers occurred between 5 and 6 p.m. with accompanying thunder. Visibility was reduced during these showers. At 5.12 p.m., the thunderstorm then over the field was moving north, and it was believed that by the time the ship arrived at the station, the storm would have moved away from the station. The ship at this time was out of sight because of low visibility, and the ceiling, in the direction from which it was expected to approach, was not more than five to six hundred feet. Conditions at the time of approach were ceiling between 2,000 to 3,000 feet, clouds 0.7 stratus, very light rainfall, sky showed signs of clearing to the westward, barometric pressure 29.72, temperature 60 degrees Fahrenheit, relative humidity 98 surface wind light, variable, and shifting, and at the precise moment of the beginning of the landing was about southeast, one knot. It was expected that the surface wind direction would go into the west, or perhaps the northwest. Reports from Trenton and Camden, New Jersey, 
indicated that the wind was westerly and that at Camden was about 18 knots just previous to the landing of the ship. Wind at the top of the weather tower on the field was west, 6 knots. The approach level of the ship was about 200 feet above the ground. The top of the tower is 186 feet above sea level. Ground elevation at place of landing was about 90 feet above sea level. The inversion condition was 60 degrees at the lower level, 59 at the second, and 57 at the third level, being temperature readings at various levels from the top to the bottom of the weather tower. As the ship was approaching the landing area, occasional lightning was visible from the distant south and southwest, but none was observed over the field at this time. When the headway of the ship was stopped, a pronounced shift of wind was felt on top of the mooring mast from southerly to southeast or south-southeast. This wind was colder than the previous wind had been. Communications Radio Regular reports from the ship were received as scheduled at the Naval Air Station, Lakehurst. At one stage, in the latter part of the flight, the static was bad, but it did not prevent communications between the ship and ground stations. Shortly before arrival at Lakehurst, direct communication was maintained by the ship with the Naval Air Station. At 1.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the station received a message from the commander of the ship stating that he would depart from Lakehurst as soon as possible after arrival. At 4.42 p.m., the commander of the station radioed the ship. Conditions still unsettled. Recommend a delay landing until further word from station. Advise your decision. At 4.52 p.m., the commander of the ship replied, We will wait till you report that landing conditions are better. At 5.12 p.m., the commander of the station advised the ship. Conditions now considered suitable for landing. Ground crew is ready. Period thunderstorms over station. Ceiling 2,000 feet. Visibility 5 miles to westward. Surface temperature 60. Surface wind West-southwest, 8 knots, gusts to 20 knots, surface pressure, 29.68. At 5.22 p.m., station commander radioed ship. Recommend landing now.
At 6 p.m., station transmitted to ship. Overcast, moderate rain. Diminishing lightning in west. Ceiling, 2,000 feet. Improving visibility. Surface wind west-southwest, 4 knots. Gusts under 10 knots. Surface temperature, 61. Pressure, 29.70. At 6.08 p.m., station commander sent last message. Conditions definitely improved. Recommend earliest possible landing. This was acknowledged by the ship. Prior to the accident, all of the ship's trailing antennas had been reeled in. No high-frequency transmissions were being conducted when the trail ropes were dropped from the ship. Both transmitters returned to the off position at that time and remained so thereafter. The radio dynamotors had also been shut off. The last message transmitted over the ship's radio was shortly after the landing signal had been sounded, about 15 minutes before the fire. It was sent on the long-wave transmitter to Lakehurst at 6.10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. During the landing, watch was kept on the long-wave receiver. No landing report was transmitted from the ship to Germany while it was over the field at Lakehurst. One of the ship's radio men stated that atmospheric disturbances had been encountered during the afternoon of May 6, but that such conditions improved toward evening and continued to improve during the last 30 minutes of the flight. No difficulty was experienced during that period in sending or receiving, either on the short or long-wave transmitters or receivers. Witness Herbert Dova, ship radio operator, stated that he was on watch and actually listening to the radio until the fire started, and that he did not notice any interference which could have been caused by improper bonding or shielding, and that he did not receive any interference such as might have been transmitted by local station. There was no oral communication between persons in the ship and on the ground during the maneuver. The sequence of actions in bringing the ship up to the landing point is, in part, revealed pictorially by the track of the ship over Lakehurst, drawn on a map of the Naval Air Station with notes on the maneuver by witness H. W. Bauer. Among other data, the map provides information respecting successive altitudes speed, operation of engines, release of ballast, and valving of gas. Operation of Engines
about ten minutes before dropping the bow trail ropes the engines were running full cruising speed ahead the ship's speed about thirty three meters per second or approximately seventy three miles per hour the altitude of the ship according to its altimeter was then about one hundred and eighty meters or five hundred and ninety feet about eight to nine minutes prior to the release of the ropes all engines were idled ahead altitude one hundred and fifty meters four hundred and ninety two feet ship speed falling off to fifteen meters per second approximately thirty three miles per hour then in fairly rapid order the after engines were idled astern and then put full astern to reduce the speed to twelve to thirteen meters per second approximately twenty seven miles per hour after which all engines were idled astern altitude at this time was one hundred and twenty meters or three hundred and ninety three feet about two minutes prior to dropping of the bow trail ropes all engines were put full astern for a period of about one minute to stop the ship after which the forward engines were idled ahead and the after engines were idled astern when the trail ropes had been dropped the forward engines were given a short first ahead then idled ahead release of ballast starting at a point about three-quarters of a mile from the landing point three hundred kilograms or six hundred and sixty one pounds of water ballast was dropped from ballast bag at frame seventy seven then in rapid order from the same frame at about intervals of one thousand feet ballast was dropped twice again the second time three hundred kilograms six hundred and sixty one pounds the third five hundred kilograms or one thousand one hundred pounds this release of eleven hundred kilograms two thousand four hundred and twenty pounds of water ballast took place within a period of two to three minutes before the trail ropes were dropped valving of gas according to witness h w bower's sketch gas was valved on the wheel for 15 seconds approximately 10 minutes before dropping the bow trail ropes the ship proceeding at full cruising speed about eight minutes prior to dropping of ropes gas in cells 11 to 16 first five forward cells was valved for 15 seconds ship then proceeding at 15 meters per second or approximately 35 miles per hour approximately four to six minutes before dropping the ropes gas in cells 11 to 16 was a 
again valved for 15 seconds. Speed of the ship, 12 to 13 metres per second, approximately 27 miles per hour. About two minutes prior to dropping of ropes, gas in cells 11 to 16 was valved for five seconds. Crew is ballast. According to the elevator man who had taken over the elevator helm in the landing approach, the ship was still slightly tail-heavy after dropping water and valving gas. Consequently, six men of the crew were sent forward to the bow in order to equalize the weights. He was unable to account for the tail heaviness of the ship after the ballast had been dropped. Tail Heaviness The ship was weighed off to the west of the field and was found a little light. There followed the trimming operations that have been described in the preceding paragraphs. There is evidence to show that the tail of the ship was heavy during the maneuver. Witness Albert Zamt, second in command of the ship, accounted for this condition by saying that it was due to the consumption of fuel, that it gave him no concern because it was very little. There was diversity of opinion advanced regarding this condition of the ship. Witnesses H. W. Bauer and C. E. Rosendahl considered it to be normal. The latter stated that the ship's tail heaviness had been logically accounted for. Under the circumstances in which it landed in a light wind with little air flow on the tail surfaces and consequently little aerodynamic lift, 120 pounds midway from the tail of the ship would be felt by the elevator man and be noticed by those in the control car who were watching the inclinometer for that very thing, that the condition did not exist from the time of the dropping of the bow trail ropes during the four minutes intervening before the fire broke out. To other witnesses, the ship appeared heavy in the stern. Among them, witness Benjamin May, in charge on top of the mooring mast, and W. A. Buckley, assistant mooring officer. Witness Hugo Eckener indicated, according to his information, that while the ship may have remained in satisfactory trim from the time the trail ropes were dropped until it burned, such interval was a short period of time. He did not think that a hydrogen leak would have been so large that in such a relatively short time it could have been noticed. He mentions the testimony of witness H. W. Bauer relating to the trimming operations, in which a very short time before the accident, six men had been ordered forward. From this, he infers that shortly before the ship reached the landing position, it was necessary to trim the ship by putting weight 
forward and that the elevator man could hardly have noticed anything during this interval because the ship had no more forward speed he further stated that careful calculations showed that the trimming moment affected by these operations amounted to at least seventy thousand to eighty thousand meter kilograms or five hundred and six thousand three hundred and ninety one to five hundred and seventy eight thousand nine hundred and thirty three foot pounds of trimming effect when this effect is compared with a trimming moment that could be obtained aerodynamically at full cruising speed by the use of the elevator controls in the order of 150,000 to 200,000 meter kilograms or 1,085,124 to 1,446,000 820 foot-pounds, then it became clear to him that the ship was very badly out of trim. Witness Eckener also testified that witnesses in the control car had reported that the out-of-trim condition originated approximately one-half hour before the landing maneuver after going through the rain clouds that the ship became tail-heavy by running through heavy rain because the weight of the rain is greater in its effect on the horizontal fins which are behind the center of gravity there is also another apparent effect of rain upon the ship that is the tail would seem to be heavy to the elevator man while the ship was running through rain because it automatically has a tendency to nose up since the center of aerodynamic pressure moves aft this effect however disappears very rapidly after passing through rain and in the present instance must have disappeared quickly because the ship as a whole was light the ship ten minutes after passing through heavy rain clouds, should have again been in good trim. In the opinion of witness Eckener, however, it appeared so tail-heavy that it became necessary to apply a trimming effect of some 70,000 meter kilograms, or 506,391 foot-pounds. Furthermore, he indicated that if the ship had been as tail-heavy before it proceeded through the rain clouds, it would not have been operated without the release of ballast. As no testimony was given that the ballast had been dropped before the ship moved into the rain clouds, witness Eckener believed that some unusual condition in the ship might have developed prior to the ship's landing. With regard to the amount of rain that the ship had been exposed to during the landing maneuver, there appears to be some difference of opinion. Witness Zomt stated that there was a little rain as the ship crossed the field at the beginning of the maneuver. 
not heavy enough to weigh the ship down as much as 500 kilograms, or 1,100 pounds. That was the only rain experienced during the last two hours of the flight because they had avoided the rain carried in the weather front. As the ship took a final bearing on the field, it made a wide turn into quiet weather, returning to the field in this condition. According to him, the front had passed and the weather was favorable for landing. The sky was overcast, but without disturbances or squalls. Witness Nelson Morris, a passenger, stated that a very light rain fell exactly as this ship came over the field the last time, but until that time there had been no rain. Witness Anton Wittemann, who had commanded the airship Graf Zeppelin, stated that when the Hindenburg approached for its landing maneuver and as it passed through the front, the weather conditions as seen from the ship were entirely favorable. The thunderstorm had passed into ordinary rain. The ship entered somewhat heavy rain, which became much lighter when closing in on the station. At the approach there were no cumulus clouds. There was a clear-cut stratus layer from which light rain was falling. Witness H. W. Bauer, second watch officer of the ship, said that about twenty minutes before the landing approach, the ship passed through a heavy rain and through stratus clouds containing rain before making the approach. It did not pass near any lightning. Altitudes at Landing when the ship was brought to a stop over the landing point, its altitude was about 180 feet above the ground. It rose to about 200 feet when the bow port landing ropes checked its further upward rise. Thereafter, it descended to about 135 to 150 feet when the accident happened. Electric Installations According to witness Philip Lentz, chief electrician of the ship, no fuses blew, nor did any circuit breakers operate just prior to the fire. The several circuits of the ship were intact. The interior ship lights and navigation lights were burning as usual. Rudder Two witnesses testified that the top and bottom rudder did not appear to be working in unison when the ship came over the field. From other testimony, it appears that the rudders were functioning normally. End of Part 3